Rabbi Eli Karfunkel is not your grandfather's rabbi, and for the members of the Forest Hill Jewish Center, that's a good thing. People want to be able to either have a beer with their rabbi, kibitz with their rabbi, relate to their rabbi, connect with their rabbi. So if I was a rabbi 200 years ago, I would be a congregant. From a very early age, Rabbi Eli studied great speakers to learn what to do. You know, I read you know, Dale Carnegie, I, I read Covey, I read Anthony Robbins. But perhaps more importantly, he studied bad speakers to learn what not to do. And sometimes I'd be shocked that the rabbi would be speaking, I'd look around and no one would be listening. So I learned a lot about public speaking just by, by looking at other people and saying, does this person realize he's talking to no one? He's funny, but he doesn't tell canned jokes. A lot of people, like, you know, do prepare jokes and and they land it. And it's really amazing how they land a prepared joke. And I, I, I can't do prepared jokes. He's great at engaging audiences, but he's not a formal type of speaker. Ellie Carvel is not someone that's going to go into a, a place to be hired as a scholar in residence, per se. Ellie Carvel is not someone that's going to be a keynote speaker at an Inspire convention. So then what do the members of Rabbi Ellie Carfunkel's shul get when he stands up to speak? They get the one thing they can't get anywhere else. They get him. So I'm me. I'm in the act. So I'm in the drush. So I would say 95% of my message is giving over me that week and how it ties into the Parsha. For Rabbi Eli, the drasha is the highlight and one of the most important parts of the week. I don't think that means he actually prepares anything until the last minute. Okay, this is a, it's a big confession. I, I wake up Shabbos morning, have my coffee, and I think what I'm going to say. For Rabbi Eli, the drasha slot is where he recreates the warmth, liveliness, and inspiration of the Shabbos table he had when growing up. I would, I would love my Shabbos meals. Uh, Friday night, Shabbos morning, it was a place where my, my parents uh, kibitz with us and, and we spoke. And In this episode, you'll learn Rabbi Carfunkel's storytelling practice for turning any story he hears into his own. You'll discover a simple mindset you can adopt right now that will enable you to deliver really transformative divrei Torah without hours of over-preparing and overthinking. And lastly, You'll learn a different goal to aim for with your speaking, which is more aligned with what your audience really remembers long after your drush is over. I learned so much from my interview with Rabbi Carfunkel. You've asked me around 15 questions. Each question is piercing my neshama. And I'm sure you will too. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rabbi Ellie Carfunkel. We're, uh, we're starting. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Uh, topic that obviously I think a lot about. I, uh, Think about, you know, there are people that are getting their connection, uh, you know, 20, 20 minutes a week, uh, some people uh, 20 minutes a year on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and stuff like that. And so uh, it's, a, it's a responsibility. It's exciting uh, to be able to be that, uh, that, cat, that the, the catalyst that only drives them to have a good week, a good month, a good year. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York. Um, I grew up uh, in a shtibol. Uh, Rabbi Isaacson Stiebel, two blocks from my house, um, and uh, and I had another shul that I went to, Young Israel Staten Island. I was blessed that uh, from my closest friends was the rabbi's son, Donnie Marcus, uh, who's uh, who him and his brother started Reish Yerushalayim, and I spent a lot of time in the house of Rabbi Marcus and uh, Rabbi Isaacson. We didn't it didn't really give drushas on Shabbos. Uh, maybe in, in Shal Shittis and stuff like that. And he more spoke more, uh, good English, but his, spoke six languages. I mean, Yiddish was his first language. 
But I remember uh, finally when my father made the transition that we were going to go Shabbos morning to young Israel instead of Shabbos morning to Isaacson Shul. Um, and hearing my Marcus speak and being so passionate, uh, I remember eight, nine, ten years old, I was like, you know, this person's, you know, influencing me with his words. Uh, and I was very inspired by him. Uh, so I grew up in Staten Island. I had amazing rabbis in elementary school, amazing rabbis in high school. I went to MTA. Uh, my 12th grade rabbi in particular, by Mayor Schiller, had a big impact on my life. I went to Neve. I tried to get into Neve for girls. That didn't work out. Uh, Neve for boys I went to, and I had very inspiring rabbis there. And then I was going to go to law school. So I figured, let me go to yeshiva now, even though some of the guys were sort of at Queens College and stuff like that. I went to, uh, and some guys were going back to Shana Gimel. I was Shana Bays and out. That was the Gulf War year. And the year after, I went to a Rabbi Wine in um, in Muncie. Uh, there I got my, uh, I, I I learned. I was studying for my LSATs and then um, switched that around. Didn't go over LSATs. Uh, got my smicha. And then I, along the way, I got married, Baruch Hashem, to my wife, Rivki. And uh, we wound up going to a small town called Oshawa, Ontario, for our first three years of after we spent like a year in Kolo and Muncie and then three years in Oshawa, Ontario. Total from population were at that point three people. We had my wife and I and my son. Um, there are a couple of more amazing people along the way. That's where I learned really how to be a rabbi because I went from Muncie, New York, where 90% of the people are Jewish, to Oshawa, Ontario, where 90% of the people didn't know what a Jew was. So um, it was quite the uh, contrast. I learned about Jews, that weren't from, you know, my whole world was uh, being around, you know, Orthodox Jews. I had some non-religious people on my block that I that we got along with, um, but it was a real eye-opener for me and real big education for me, and the shul was amazing. Uh, but I used to drive into Toronto every day to make Minyan, which was around 45-minute drive, because um, we didn't have regular shachas. We only had shachas in Oshawa when there was, uh, let's say, Yurtzeit or something, we'd make a Minyan. So I would go in every day. I went up learning in the Kolo there, finding Chavrusa, getting a part-time gig with NCSY in Toronto. And then after three years, uh, someone made me a pitch, a guy, Yaakov Kaplan, whose grandfather was the visionary Joe Tannenbaum. Why don't you move into a secular year in Toronto and start a shul from scratch with your wife? So I said, uh, Rifki, let's do it. And I've been in this part in Toronto, Forest Hill, for the last 23 years. So that's basically my life. Wow, my life is really boring. It's 30 seconds. <laughs> so what was the what was the role? I'm curious the role of of the rabbi in the in the small shul where you, you didn't even have a minion during the week and and uh, no one was really uh, from what, what what was your what was the role and what was what was your goal for 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 the position? Okay, so uh, first I'm I'm mean, looking for a job. So um, the job as a rabbi, once you decide to be a rabbi, you go where there's a shul. Um, and it was blessed because I had three job opportunities, all smaller job opportunities. Um, they called me up and they said they wanted us. Happened to be that Asha was a 45-minute drive from Toronto, main in Toronto, so we thought it'd be really good to be around uh, uh, them. And um, later, many years later, I found out I was the only applicant, so I was a little bit of an ego uh, hit. But um, but yet, in a small shul like Oshawa, um, where you're basically the only Shomer Shabbat and Shomer Kashris, although a lot of amazing people there on different levels. Um, so uh, you're, you're, you know, the shul is the, there's, there was only one shul. In other words, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, everyone came to this place. When everyone had a bar mitzvah, uh, yeah, you could hire a Toronto caterer, but most of the simchas, most of Hanukkah, Purim, everything, the ladies came to the shul and cooked in the shul uh, to keep it kosher. So there was a real feeling of this is one big family. Um, we 
had a three-day week Hebrew school, two hours a day, Sunday, uh, uh, Tuesday, and Thursday. So kids were committing to six hours. I don't know if that exists anymore. Public school kids committing to six hours a week. So um, the rabbi before me was amazing. He was single uh, for 10 years. He was a rabbi in Oshawa. Uh, he was a great rabbi. I ended up moving to, I believe, Memphis and got married there. But when my wife came in, you know, she started making the cholent on Shabbos and, and ladies started connecting with her. So yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing opportunity for me to learn about myself and to learn about uh, and to help people. And like everything, as you know, you're a rabbi, like, you know, people, I think, I don't know when this changed, but people want to be able to either have a beer with their rabbi, kibitz with their rabbi, relate to their rabbi, connect with their rabbi. So if I was a rabbi 200 years ago, I would be a congregant because my skill sets do not really resonate with the rabbi that exists 200, 200 years ago, writing svarim, giving drushes twice a year, having like lots of Yerushimayim. I mean, I'm not like against Yerushimayim, but like, you know, these amazing Jews, and I'm definitely a product of what the Eilam needs now, where I think, because Hashem blessed me to be in a shul in Oshawa and in here, where I feel my 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 talents are, are what is needed. So that's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. So they saw you more as a, 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 a leader, but but like a leader maybe from the middle as opposed to the in front of them or above them. Yeah, that, I mean, there's, always that that balance. there's always that balance, you know, uh, you want to schmooze with them, but, you know, there's sometimes you don't want to, you can't you know, be with them. But listen, I was uh, 23. My wife was 21. We had a little kid, um, you know. The, at the Prabha, at the opening, a lady came over to me and said, you know, I'm old enough to be your mother. And I'm thinking, no, actually grandmother. But, um, you know, so it was like they adopted us. We were the cute young couple. Um, and uh, they loved the fact that we brought energy and enthusiasm to their kids. And um, they knew that we weren't going to be there for long. Uh, but that didn't stop them from committing to us emotionally. Um, you know, uh, our first Purim, uh, two girls in the Hebrew school came over. One girl had a pillow under her dress. She came up as the Rebbitson. One had a, a black hat, came as me. And I was like, okay, you know, like we're a part of their lives. And so um, still today, uh, we have people that we we stay connected to. Sonny, my rabbi, Rabbi Wine, I remember him saying that when you go to a new shul, that you should not uh, stay involved in the old shul. Um, I know some rabbis that retire stay in their old Shul. So Rabbi Wine said, no, you have to leave because you have to give the new rabbi an opportunity to be the rabbi. So when I left Ashu and I came to Toronto, um, a new rabbi came in, actually wound up being his Chavrusa, uh, which was really neat. And uh, he, he made Aliyah many years later. But I made a certain decision not to connect with the people in the hometown because I remember where my rabbi said, give this person a shot. But, you know, the the shul has changed a little bit. I haven't been there in a while. And so uh, I, I yearn and I enjoy all those relationships I have. We had some people from that from that town move to Toronto and join the shul here, which is pretty neat. But um, yeah, they're, they're amazing. And so I don't know how they viewed me, but I think they viewed us as this, this really cute young couple that brought a lot of energy and excitement back into the shul. Yeah. Did you find yourself, like you said, you, you grew up in... Uh, it, surrounded by frumkite and and now you have to kind of scale back or w without dumbing down and condescending but you have to scale back a lot of your knowledge and and uh probably language in order to to be able to reach them um how did that work was that was that difficult or was that uh uh so i i two, two points number one is i grew up non-orthodox 
So um, I got hit by a car in grade seven in the ambulance. My father asked me, Ellie, what do you want? And I said, I want a TV in my room. So, uh, so till it was confiscated, I mean, so I grew up, you know, pretty much, you know, watching the same programs that the general world watched and, and being fed the same sort of, so the pop culture, the sports, and, and uh, that was very much connection. But I do find that, uh, and, and, and I get the sense from you as well, I, like you can be born in Bulgaria, uh, you can be born in Alaska, you can be born from, not from Chinese, whatever, but this ability to uh, be a good listener, to connect to people, I mean, um, that's, that's, that's uh, I don't know if it's a skill some people have, um, but, um, you know, you know, I can I can speak to a Hasidic guy. I can speak to a non 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 religious non non uh, Buddhist Asian. It's just about being able to really connect to people. Everyone has something to offer, and so um, that that I didn't find that a challenge at all. And and if you're talking about humor, once is humor, then people chill out, like they say. You know, so I'm blessed to be a rabbi of a, a a synagogue, a center where the neighborhood is not religious and people go to the reform and conservative and they're very, very, very nervous about coming into an Orthodox synagogue. And when they yeah. come to the Orthodox center, they are shocked. They are shocked because it, for the most part, uh, reform and conservative are, you know, they're, they're actually a lot, there's a lot less talking in shul in the reform and conservative. And they're, it's very formal. And they come into a conservative, a rabbi shul and the rabbi, goes over to them and gives them a hug. And as a kibitz thing, and there's a lot going on in the shul. I mean, our shul probably needs to improve on a lot of things, but uh, there's there's a varmkite that uh, that you get in in a in a shul that is very uh, disarming. So uh, you have a non from person walking to Orthodox shul, they are so nervous. They're nervous about getting an aliyah. They're nervous about doing psicha. They are so nervous. Just I want to sit in the back and just, and then there's kibitzing going on, and they wind up laughing at something. They're like, "Wow, shul's fun," you know. And then, and then, boom! Then you hit them with something spiritual. But uh, you know, it, I think we're talking the same language there. Yeah, got it. So when you went out to uh, to this first position in uh, Ottawa, uh, Ottawa. Um, so how how did you approach the uh, the drusha slide? Did you uh, um, did you have uh, prior experience, or did you take uh, homiletics, or you know, public speaking? Did you learn on the job? How did how did it all uh, unravel? Thank you for asking. So first of all, I, I met. So I'm, I was a rabbi in Oshawa, Ontario. Oshawa is yeah. a small. Ottawa has is is, a, is I think five ten thousand Jews. It's a big place. You know, yeah. Uh, you know. So uh, so Oshawa. So okay. So um. So I uh, again. I was always. Like, I don't know, the kids would maybe run out during the sermon. Every time Rabbi Marcus would speak in Staten Island, I'd be like, what is he going to say? He's very passionate, right? Um, then I uh, I went to Neve and they would give me some opportunities to speak. You know, you know I read, you know, Dale Carnegie. I, I read Covey. I read Anthony Robbins. I you know, read those people. Like, how can I improve myself? Da, da, da. Um, and uh, I found also that uh, I'm not the most musical person, but I also found that like when I would get into the singing, I would, I would, it would, or the dancing at a wedding, like I'd, I'd be the guy like bringing people into the middle. So I had that sort of like, you know, that a uh, little bit rah-rah in me and be able to move people. Um, but yeah, it's funny because Rabbi Marcus, uh, very passionate and Rabbi Wine, who uh, was my rub and gave me a public speaking course, he gave me a couple of really good uh, tips. Uh, but just, you know, also every time a person would speak, I would 
focus in on, as it sounds like you do, focus in on like, how is he connecting to the audience? And sometimes I'd be shocked that the rabbi would be speaking, I'd look around and no one would be listening. And I would think, why is the rabbi continuing to speak? Why is he not trying to save these 10 minutes? Like he, he no one's paying attention. Is he talking to himself? Is he not trying to like win them back? Like if I would have, if I would be speaking and one person would be falling asleep, I once heard Shomer Lofsky, Rabbi Arlovsky, like, I'd be spending my whole sermon trying to get that guy to wake up. So, so I learned a lot about, uh, you know, um, uh, about public speaking just by, by looking at other people and saying, does this person realize he's talking to no one? Like the bar mitzvah boy doing the pshatel in Yiddish when no one is paying attention. Okay, maybe that's a rite of passage in some communities, but like, if you're an adult speaking and no one's paying attention, like, aren't we missing the point? Are like you saying a devotee to yourself? So, I experienced in my life so many of that, so many times where I was like, why does he not know no one's paying attention? And at the same time, when a speaker would speak and everyone would be into it, and I would be, I'd be like, you know, don't the other rabbis, aren't they paying attention to that rabbi or that 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 speaker? That So I was always looking, even as a 12-year-old, 15-year-old, always trying to figure out, like, do people know no one's paying attention to you? Um and then, and then I had some public speaking tips from my wine. So I'll share with you. I don't remember if he said all these things, but I do remember he said, when you're doing a funeral and you never met the person, don't start off with, although I've never met the deceased. Because then everyone's like, well, why should I pay attention to you? And if people know that probably. So why do you need to start off with that? And every time people start off their, their eulogy sermon with, oh, I've never met the deceased. I'm like, no, no. You know, don't just talk like you spent. You know about the person's values because you spoke. So just let her rip, you know. And and so um, he talked about, you know, standing and posturing and, and communication. But what I found that I what I found in my life and my my, my wife is a good, uh, uh, you know, a critic is, is negative. But I mean, this in the positive sense. She told me that I am awful, awful. And she always jokes about this at prepared jokes. So most, uh, a lot of people, like you know, do prepare jokes, and and they land it, and it's really amazing how they land the prepared joke. And I, I, I can't do prepared jokes. So people always, you know, Brach Hashem, I have this reputation. That obviously, my 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 uh, hardcore base promotes this that the Carvangle's funny, and that he gets the message across, but. If you're asking to, you know, prepare jokes, like I do on the side with my kids, I do dad jokes um, and uh, they, they, and the groaners and stuff like that. But at a drasha, especially at a critical moment, uh, Rosh Hashanah, when the, when the shul is packed, zero prepared jokes, because number one is, um, you know, I'm, I'm bad at it. And number two is, it, it also shows like, oh, this guy's got to go to prepare joke to be funny. And like, just let like let it rip. If you're funny, you don't like you don't need to rely on a prepared joke. But it happens to be that delivering a prepared joke is a skill set that I don't have. So I've, I've moved on. So uh, how am I funny without without like thirty jokes in my you know repertoire, like prepared dad jokes? Like that's uh, it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, uh, I think I, I know that I know how to I, I how I do it. I think, but. Um, um, but that is the uh, that's the key. I know my talents. I know I'm not good at uh, prepared jokes. Um, and then just to say, like we're talking about, like I don't consider myself the best public speaker. So I say there's people that really are good at hiring people to be the guest speaker at their dinner. 
So I would not also be comfortable. I do that like when when people call me up, can you speak? And I like the free jobs, you know, a lady's sisterhood calls me up, another shul calls me up, speak for free, you know, I'll do that. And then obviously I hope for the honorarium, but um, but when they, when like Ellie Carvel is not someone that's going to go into, you know, um, uh, a, a place to be hired as a scholar in residence per se. Ellie Carvel is not someone that's going to be a keynote speaker at an Inspire convention because I I, uh, I let it rip. And so I have no filter. And so uh, I say things that uh, that sometimes I they come out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, let's bring that back in. But my oilum is very forgiving and, they, and that's sort of a relationship thing. So I'm very comfortable. I know about the book, Malcolm Gladwell, speaking so many times, like, in a, in a drusha setting, that's my comfort zone. Um, I love teaching uh, I, bar mitzvah kids, a, a, a parsha class, uh, but it's uh, all you get is me, and so um, I don't I don't do the prepared jokes well, um, and I don't do and uh, and we're not you know so so I know who I am. And I was once at my brother in law's house. I believe it was my brother in law. I'll give him credit. No, I definitely was at his house. Uh, Shimmy Idels was at his house in Queens, and. Uh, the only book he had in his bathroom was a book on the biography of Billy Crystal, a great comedian, someone that, uh, from my memory, basically was clean um, and a Menchadika guy. Uh, hopefully he married a, a Jewess. I don't know his personal story, but I remember reading the book and I remember, and I was already, uh, this was, you know, this was like 10, 15 years ago. So I was already a rabbi many years and um, I don't even know the title, but he thought he he was doing he did a great Muhammad Ali impersonation. He was on Saturday Night Live. He he was killing it, and then someone that he held of told him that he'll never make it. He'll never make it. He's like, what do you mean? I I, I do all these things, you know. He says, yeah, because Billy, you're lacking one thing from your act. You're lacking one ingredient. He's like, what? He's like, you're lacking you. You're not in the act. You have to be the act. That you're you're nodding to me like I guess you. So I'm me. It's like people like when they, you know, they're, you know, it's like I'm in the act. So I'm in the drush. The drush is about me and my foibles and Brach Hashem. I have a lot of foibles and I'm, I forget things. And, and as a rabbi, you're being more sensitive and more aware when things happen that you're like, not that I can use this for a sermon, but you're more sensitive to uh, events that take place in your life. And then you extrapolate those events and you give over a message. So I would say 95% of my messages, 95% of my messages is giving over me that week and how it ties into the Parsha and um, and to give people a strong message. Now, Brach Hashem, we have a kolol in our shul and we have a Rosh kolol who grew up in the shul. His name is Rabbi Meir Goodman. Um, and he, and uh, we have we have we have learning programs and stuff like that. But I've always felt that uh, that the, the, the Drusham time is a time is a time to inspire, and I know my audience. Know thy audience. I know that the people coming in want to hear something. They want to laugh. They I want I want they they know they're going to be hit uh, with the message, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna make them I'm gonna make them laugh. Hopefully, make them cry, and then the, and the sermon's over, and it's 15 minutes. It's not it's not schleppy. Um, I always hear the voice go on go on, um, but uh, and it's a nice message. And it's not heavy. There's never a moment of like where the rabbi is giving over the content and that's seven minutes of like, ah, oh, 
get back to the good stuff. You know, start your sermon nice and then and then come back with something. So no, I want them paying attention the whole way through. And they get me. So um, I don't think this is a chiddush from Billy Crystal. But when I read that, I'm like, yeah, because uh, I actually grew up in New York again. I grew up in Orthodox and I was listening to a guy that's a little bit uh, more schmutzy on the radio. And not a lot because I was into, but this guy became very famous. And uh, and, um, and then I hopped, you know, Lema Freya uh, retroactively that he had that same thing that the, the Billy Crystal gave him advice. He, he was the right. act. Right. I, I, I worked for that fellow. Believe it or not, <laughs> uh, in a previous lifetime, I, uh, I I wrote for that uh, radio show host. Um, Outside of the schmutziness, do you agree with my assessment of what he, the schmutz he, itself? Wouldn't have propelled him as far as it did. It was the it was the uh, honesty, the 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 feeling that you were uh, getting a glimpse into who the person was and who he worked with and his his crew and um, and and the the. Authenticity of it all is is what I think really the the the, the schmutzy stuff is probably what what was the the gift wrapping that made it you know attractive to people, but I think what really what what kept it going that long was the fact that people felt that they knew him they knew when something would happen big like you know say nine eleven for example everybody wanted to tune in to see you know what was he going to say about it what was he, you know how was he going to relate to it how was he going to um, so those those things were uh, yeah they 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 made a big uh, impression upon me when I was when I was younger yeah and uh, so let me ask you a question because uh, this is a uh, sometimes a hazard of of the person personality of the speaker where he injects a lot of himself sometimes people feel that well maybe you know he's self absorbed he's you know this is the you know why are we always hearing about him and his life and his uh, his experiences you know how do how do you make it so that uh, people get that genuine authenticity from you and and that glimpse into who you are and 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 you uplift them with your message but um, how do you make it so that it's not like the Rabbi Carfunkel show excellent question so the truth is is that uh you know, I, I do think about that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm the first rabbi of my shul. So, uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're blessed to start this. So, so my my the, the people that come to shul are pre-selected. They've already decided that they liked me. In other words, other rabbis, the fourth rabbi of the shul, the eighth rabbi of the shul, they've been a rabbi. They might have chosen this rabbi in the Praba. They may have chosen the other rabbi. So they pick the guy I don't like. And so you have to, you, you don't hate him, but, uh, so, but everyone in... What? They're stuck with you. Yeah, it's stuck with you. You've been, you'll, you'll be there. You've been a rabbi thirty years. You've been a congregant thirty years. You're not. You're not leaving. So I've been blessed with you know the fact that I'm the first rabbi of the, of the shul. So everyone that comes to the shul, already they already like me because why else are they coming? Yeah, they might come for geography and and look blah blah blah. But so I, I merit that that it, I, that I that I feel a oneness. So I would say like this is that if you number one is if in mitzias. You're pretending to be the rabbi that's you know has these foibles and that talk you know that uses that as as a, as a vehicle for the drush. So, but in your real life, you're not you know when you hug someone, you're doing it as a bidyevet and you don't care about them. Uh, and uh, and when and there's a few times you have these mices where you're with people and it's a crying moment and you're crying in the shul uh, and it's about your interaction with something or someone, but it's just an act. So that's when I think that people resent. I mean, people resent you and like, okay, this guy's self-absorbed. But um, if this is if this is how you are, 
you know, um, you know, then then uh, then people are okay with it because it's the real you. Now, when you talk about, I use my foibles. Yeah. So the last week, I I did a uh, my sermon was highlighting, you know, a great act of sensitivity by a gadol. Um, so it's not just the daily carvingal act, but the daily carvingal act. Whatever started last week because I was in Florida. And I wasn't feeling well in the Uber, and I left my phone in the Uber. And then I only realized that when I got into the airport at Fort Lauderdale, coming home. And then, you know, the the the, the lady that helped me out, uh, you know, to get to get the phone back, and my car so tough to her, and the whole craziness of God, I got I lost my phone in the Uber, and I got it back eight minutes later. You know, and in the and the phone in the packet, you have your driver's license, your Nexus card, blah, 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 blah. Your whole life is packed in that phone and, and in the back of the phone. So, you know, I think if I was if, are you ever the term T4? Um, so my kids kids taught me about it. So let's say I'm talking to you and I'm talking to you about the my my thing with the flight uh and 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 the plane ride and then I drop it that um you know that you know as coming back from uh, my my condo in Bell Harbor from Florida, or, um, you know, I was going first class. I mean, this, if you're dropping things to like T4, like you should know that like I'm coming back from Paris and all these fans. So if there's like a lot of T4ing going on in your sermons, uh, then like, you know, you're name dropping. And so that's pathetic. And then people can sniff that out, little kids and, and adults. So when you're giving over your story, when you're just into the story and you're not T4ing, so then you come off real. And if you're real in real life, then I find that um, now, obviously, people come to shul with, um, with you know, th this rabbi is this, or I, I don't like sermons. Um, but, um, you know, I, for the most part, my shtick is uh, my shtick. That's who I am. And what's interesting is that uh, I find, I find that the worst thing a rabbi can do and I've seen this because I'm 51, is try to be, try to do prepared jokes when they're not good at it. And then there are certain non-funny people that are not good at prepared jokes. And there are certain, I don't know, funny people, I don't know if that's about uh, being a Balgaiva, uh, that are also not. And then, he, and then um, that, for instance, my Rosh Kolo. My Rosh Kolo, is a totally different style than me. His name is Mayor Goodman. I can listen to him for five hours. He's he's a maestro with English and Hebrew words, and he, the way he develops things, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, But he doesn't try to be me, and I don't try to be him. So he doesn't try to be, uh, you know, Seinfeldian or Billy Crystalian or whatever. Um, he is him. And so I found that, you know, people always say that the most, the best drasha is when you, uh, you know, you make them laugh and then you come in with the message. Uh, then you make them cry. And you know that expression that a dress should be like a plane ride. You know, the most important thing is the takeoff and the landing, which is most people fail. They just worry about the flight. I mean, the most important thing with the drasha is the takeoff. But I would say even more than the takeoff, the landing. Sometimes you hear the rabbi, I just want to say one more thing. I just want to say one more thing. And everyone's like, land the plane, land the plane. My my kids know about this analogy. It's not the most un, un, unfamiliar analogy with pulpit speaking, especially with rabbis. But my kids, they just have to say, even if they're 14, you know, they just have to land the plane. And I know I, I bombed, or if they're speaking about someone else, just land the plane already. So people don't go in with the game plan. But the main thing is with public speakers, know your your skill level. Like this, like don't like if you're don't try to be funny if you're not funny. And that's just it just it wears at people. It's like your nails on a chalkboard, just be you. And that's what people want, I think. Deliver a nice message, be you. 
and uh, be could doesn't necessarily mean being an open book like I am. Um, but if you're you and you're delivering a nice message and you and you don't speak for half an hour, um, you're gonna you, everyone's gonna be your fan. Yeah. So I have a couple questions. It, so back in the shul in in uh, Oshawa, did you start off with this this uh, the kind of freewheeling uh, open book type of uh, speaking, or did you uh, evolve into it? So very good. Uh, so everything is ever evolving. I'm, I'm I'm always working um, on 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 honing that skill, whether subconsciously or consciously. So no, first of all, and I was in Oshawa, the internet didn't exist yet, or it did. It was like dial up, and it was like slow. So, like, what do I do for material? So uh, I was like, ah, you know. So I remember when it came around, Rabbi Marcus gave me like. Um, getting like four books, like Sermons of 67, Sermons of 68. I, I know every rabbi, I was like, wow, these are gold mine, like sermons. And like, and I was reading those sermons and I was like, you know, uh, you know, using them and thinking about them. And there were some clippings that were somehow in the thing. So it's it was ever evolving. I'm sure that the crowd in Oshawa had a lot of patience with me as they did with my Successors, Rabbi Popko of Montreal was a rabbi in uh, in Toronto, and uh, Rabbi Biedenfeld in St. Louis, Rabbi Langer. Uh, um, these are all rabbis that started off in Oshawa. So, yes, I uh, developed definitely. Uh, I think if if someone would have um, you know uh, spoke in the middle of my sermon my first year, I, I wouldn't know how I've reacted. But uh, you know, uh, getting people to laugh and you know dealing with. You know all the things that come up when you're speaking. Someone walking in late, a kid getting a lollipop near you, um, um, you know, a, a guy, an older, you know, or a younger man snoring out loud. Thank God that doesn't happen. Uh, I think, um, but uh, so all those things probably would affect me. But definitely a style um, right away in Oshawa was um, things that happened to me. Always looking for material. My Friday night table growing up. Was, was probably the reason why. And, I, and by the way, I always felt that like for me and my three siblings, I'm the worst public speaker. My my brothers are amazing and my sister is a dynamic. Um, she's also a dynamic writer. Um, and uh, I felt it was really our Friday night table. My my parents, I would, lo I would love my Shabbos meals, uh, Friday night, Shabbos morning. It was a place where my my parents uh, kibitz with us, and and we spoke, and it was always like you know my 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 younger sister always complained that she was the youngest, and my older brother was born in seventy, and my sister was my younger my sister was born in eighty, so we were sort of all born in the ten years, but my my sister she can never like get a story in. I was like, but this happened, but this happens. Like that was this, I'm sure a lot of Shabbos tables are like that. So uh, that's definitely, and my dad would say over stories. And what's amazing is that you know. Every 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 dad so you know you you live with your father long enough you hear the same stories over and over again and and it was just be like ah it's like a like a good child's book you're reading again and again so you know so I definitely start off that model right away um, my vocabulary might have increased uh, but a plus or minus three percent so that's not significant on the back of the food carton um, but definitely I've become more aware and the internet has helped a lot. Um, but I definitely, I re, I, one time I used a prepared joke, like a kibitz from the internet. I'm like, okay, it's like never again. Am I doing that again? Um, and sometimes, and, and I don't know if, if rabbis, many times I, I get up, up like during the Haftorah, I don't know if other rabbis are like this, but 
during the Torah, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not like, speaking soon. And you look around and you're like, okay, this person just came back from Florida. So you want to give that person a shout out. Um, and you, this person's sponsoring Kiddush, but the president didn't be precise in, in why that person's sponsoring Kiddush. So I'm going through that little, the, 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 the pre-sermon stuff to make sure everything is good. Thank God my, my president is, I don't have to worry about so much of that, but in case I, there's one or two things missed. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? So that's like the pre-sermon stuff. What was your question again? Am I just well, rambling? I was just like asking how you evolved from uh, from from the beginning when you started speaking to your style. Now, uh, did it start off more formal, and then you kind of evolved into the uh, more freewheeling? Right, the answer, the answer is yes. Um, yeah, because of because uh, I'm fascinated with 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 looking at great Polish speakers. Obama, great public speaker. Charlie Arari a great public speaker. Um, but everyone and anyone that's speaking about anything, I'm really honing in on. So I'm always fascinated. My father-in-law is an architect. And every time he goes into a house, he's like banging the walls, you know, he's like checking things out. And um, and you and I, you're a comedian, I'm, I'm a rabbi, you're a rabbi, you know, public speaking, like, what's this guy's special sauce? And, and what is he doing? And this and that. So I'm always learning. So, and and like all, uh, when I was 22, I guess my biggest challenge was not realizing that I could, I can be humble to say that these guys are, are, are great. So like if I would have listened to Charlie Arari when I was 22, I don't think he was yet famous when I was 22. I think he's my age. I would have listened to him. I think he's a great public speaker. I was teach his own, but I think he's great. I think most people do. Um, I would have, I would have not, I would have been like, you know, I'm a rabbi. I'm a, you know, like my ego might would have, would have gotten in the way of me. Like, just relax. He's great. And he has his style and just enjoy and learn and appreciate. So now I'm uh, actually enjoy listening to other people that are good because uh, look, I'm already 51. If I'm, I'm going to be jealous of other public speakers, like I got to grow up already. So I think that that, I don't know if I was jealous then, but like, you know, nervous energy, like who's this guy that thinks everyone's enjoying, everyone should enjoy me. So like, right, whatever now, I'm just going to enjoy them and learn from them. Yeah. So let me ask you in terms of, uh, I heard, uh, I think I heard one of your, uh, I don't want to call it lecture presentations uh, for uh, Torch. I think it was like a, an inspirational type of uh, speech that you gave. And you told a story about, uh, uh, I think it was an Australian athlete who uh, basically made it Peter? because everybody else fell out. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Yeah, yeah. That was a great, great story. So so you say you don't you don't tell prepared jokes and, and I guess you but you you'll tell stories. The, the, your humor will emerge from your own personality, but you'll tell stories that you find. What's your what's your approach to telling stories? Do you try to how do you how do you uh, approach that? Okay. Um, so when I see, so st stories don't re re require you to own the story and to create the, the punchline. When, when you're hearing a joke, that pregnant pause uh, right before the punchline is, uh, and is, is all about, you know, that, that's the, that's the delivery. That's where you, you know, you, you gave the audience three minutes for those four second punchline. And so that is like for me it's like singing someone else's song and uh it's very hard for me but when i hear a story and i like that that the story of the the speed skater there it resonated with me so much so i owned the person it was like you know um well, i forget who but i once heard you know a complaint about davening it's the same words but um 
someone said, well, you know, every time you say, Gomel chasadim tovim, just think about something that happened in your life the day before that you want to thank Hashem for. Don't just thank Hashem for health. Thank Hashem that, uh, that you know, that you, you found your car keys. Thank Hashem that uh, you had a great cup of coffee. Make it personal, the Gomel Chasadim Tovim, and then every Shimon Esrei becomes its own thing. So I found with stories, I have the ability to own the story. Like I see the message of just hanging in there, right? With that, with that uh, speed skater, just for the people that don't know on the podcast, uh, you know, he uh, he only won because he hung around in the back of the race and just everyone in those tight speed skating ovals, you know, there's a lot of times people fall and everyone fell and, and he won. And so I think the crowd sort of resonates in me. If I resonate, if I like that story, you hang around, you hang around, you hang around. Um, and then and then good things are going to happen. Just stick around. Don't give up. Um, so I res that that story resonates with me. And then how I, you know, got excited about it after the story, you know, that became me. So if if I if this because every time I a Shabbos morning, I go, Rivka, I have nothing to speak about. She's like, why don't you speak about this? And then she speaks to me. And then she's like, Well, you're not gonna speak about what I'm gonna say anyway, because that's me. And every time she goes to speak and I try to help her and I say, go this way, that way, are you going to speak about that? She's like, yeah, that, that's only going to be good if that's you, but I'm me. And so uh, every story you got to own. And then and then when you say it over, it's like it's like you're a story. So it's like when you're davening, those notes, they're not the Anshikanagadol notes, but you're playing them. So I find with stories. So I'm always, I, I'm on a, I'm on a chat with uh, 12 outreach rabbis. I'm, uh, I'm on a chat with two other rabbis in Toronto. And so sometimes we share stuff and stories. Um, but yeah, I'm always enjoying stories. Even I have a friend, uh, Rabbi Shippel, he had told me, he lives in uh, New York, and he, he told me once about a story that that he was involved with in, 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 in California in a hospital. And um, I gave it over in Rosh Hashanah. But it became my story by the time I gave it over. It was him, but the story impacted me so much. I didn't say I was the individual in, in uh, that met the, the that was involved in the story. But anyways, Roger Bannister, four minute mile. Everyone resonates with that. But I'm not using Roger Bannister as an example anymore because like, oh, I'm the 39th million rabbi that quoted Roger Bannister. Is do you remember the name of the second guy? Like, all right, like I have standards. I'm not going to do stories that everyone's heard of. But um, yeah, make it your own. Yeah, in the comedy world, they call that uh, hack being a hack. Yeah, uh, well, use, they're using cliched uh, stories and, and jokes and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I want to uh, bring up something that that you may have just given some of the listeners a heart attack by saying it's Shabbos morning. I don't know what I'm talking about. Now, how do you get to the week wh where where you know you know you have to speak? And you still don't have something Shabbos morning. Is that do you do you not prepare during the week, or do you um, you know what's what's your process like? Okay, this is a it's a big confession. I think it's not the right religion, but uh, I'm, I feel I'm very different, and that's why I, I know me. Like I uh, I uh, yeah, I, I wake up Shabbos morning, have my coffee, and I think of what I'm going to say. So um, every you know, there's no I there's no uh, major like 10 pages of of notes um i forget who i think there's a lady aliza bulo i think she told my wife once about giving a chumash year she's like you're giving a chumash year you think you have to prepare seven hours but you've been preparing 45 years i mean you're you're a rabbit so you're learning chumash you uh, so 
So yeah, so how long I've been waiting to give this sermon this Shabbos? I've been I've been preparing 51 years of my life to give that sermon. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend, you know, uh, for people that, you know, were going to blow it. But, uh, you know, I took any rabbi in the world and I said, go speak for 20 minutes about this week's Parsha. You know, they might need 15 seconds, but they could let it rip. So, uh, and do a good job. And uh, go with something that happened to them, and 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 deliver a nice message. So um, yeah, so that's I, I rely on that a lot. Um, you know, so it happens to be this week I saw an idea on 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 the crushim about uh, mistakes erasing, and I'm like, okay, you know what? Let me in my head think about you know as I'm plying through this week uh, mistakes that happened in my life, and it's okay to make mistakes, and you know it's it's Adik full seven times, so it's sort of like in the there. But, you know, rabbis, many rabbis will tell you that you get up there and you just something takes you and, and you go in a direction. But when you when you play that game um, that I do of not having a your sermon ready Thursday night or Friday, when you play that game, it does backfire in two ways. A, you might deliver a chillant message where your story doesn't really connect to your Dvar Torah and everyone's like, eh, what he, he was good, but it was a little bit, you know, not, didn't fit into something simple that they can go home and repeat. And then also you don't land the plane. So, um, and then the sermon just goes on and on and on and on. So uh, I do roll the dice a lot, uh, but I don't think I rolled the dice. Talk about the difference. I don't think I rolled the dice when I was in my 20s or 30s. I don't say roll the dice. My congregants like, you don't respect me enough to prepare a sermon Thursday night. I say, uh, well, you know, th this is, uh, you know, so I'm prepared, been preparing 51 years to give this sermon. And, uh, you know, hear an idea, another idea pops into your head. And uh, I'm, I'm Marva Sedra. So uh, I'm looking at the Chumash the whole week, in only a, a day. Uh, I do Rashi. Um, you know, uh, in the car, you know, Brach Hashem. Uh, you know, I'm not listening to sports radio so much. I'm listening to Shiram. Uh um, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising. See, that was a T4. I just mentioned the exercise, but you know, my, my little exercise, um, I'm thinking about my life and stuff like that. So I'm not just listening to, to the music. So I'm in the Parsha. Um, and something might resonate with me that never resonated with me before, you know, about the Mishkan, you know, that, you know, and so just different things pop into your head during the week. So it's not, but there's no, don't sit down for an hour and a half Thursday night and say, okay, what am I going to speak about? Um, and the times I do, what I find when I do that for Hashanah Yom Kippur, sometimes I come out there sounding very mechanical. I don't know if that's the right word. When I get up there and I'm overprepared and I'm going through my A, B, C, D, E, right? Because if you're going through word by word, I don't know how those congregants deal with rabbis that prepare word for word what they're speaking. And they're not, it's like, why don't you just do the newsletter and everyone can save 20 minutes? You know, like you want to deliver something, right? Um, but I do find that also it's very hard when I over-prepare. I sound very mechanical. I don't know if mechanical is the right word. But anyways. And I guess by now you trust the process, right? You, you, you'll you trust that something, you'll, you'll have something to say when you get to shul. Has there ever been a time where, you know, there are the closing strains of, uh, you know, Chadesh Yemenu, Kiketa, and and you're just your heart's just pounding because you're just not exactly sure what you're going to say now. Yeah. So uh, so true confessions. I think of all rabbis will confess. Yes, you get up there in front of the Ahmed, and uh, you have no clue what's going to come out of your mouth. In fact, my kids already know 
that when I, I have a certain expression with like, and I'd like to just conclude with a story. Most times I don't know what story I'm going to say when I've just said, I'm going to conclude with the story. So uh, they're like, why didn't you just say that? You have no story. And then I do this pregnant pause. And then I say, Shem, please give me a story. Please give me a story. Please give me a story. So I'm up there many times. And I feel many times as a katanti, uh, that I've used up all of my mitzvahs in this world because Hashem has splashed me with siyat dishmaya in all these circumstances that I'm able to do, do average, above average or good stuff when I actually don't know what's going to come out. But I, I always tell people, you know, if I asked you to stand up and, and report on your business, you know, if you're, for some people, public speaking is hard. Uh, for some people, public speaking is easy. Uh, I, I'm not good at many things. And as I told you, I'm, what I know what I'm good at in my public speaking, uh, you know, little genre, the subset of like the drushas, you know, the teaching and the shul vibe. I don't think I'd be a good speaker for, uh, you know, when a young Israel, blah, 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 is having, you know, Rabbi Carfunkel speak. Uh, I, I, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a little unorthodox. Um, and you, you, want, you want a guy that starts over the good pan joke, delivers the sermon, hits the notes, blah, 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 and ends. Um, and, um, so, yeah, so Alas, yeah. yeah. And when you speak at other places, like for example, when you're invited to speak somewhere, how much time do you give to that? Uh, do, do you think about it on the car ride there? Are you, you know, how, how much time? Cause it's not, it's not your crowd. So there right. must be some feeling of like, well, I, you know, I, I have to please these people or I have to, you know, I have to get, deliver them something of value. I can't just kind of ride on my charisma or or whatever it is sometimes but for people who don't know you yet so how how do you find yourself putting a little bit more preparation in those times yes definitely um when uh you know i've spoken at other shuls functions and dinners and stuff like that um uh, even when i was uh, the mc at my son's uh Ner Yisrael, uh graduation from high school that mc job Whereas, uh, you know, starting off with the two minute thing and then introducing the different rabbis, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do this MC job, um, I'm going to do really well and I'm going to bring my value to it and not just be a t regular MC, a little bit of kibitzing, you know, everyone laughing and get everyone serious. So, yeah, I put a lot of time into that. It's funny, like my, my paying gig, uh, uh, not so much, but all of the free gigs that I do uh, spend a lot, a lot more time to make sure I hit the notes. Also, I know those things you do want to, I do have uh, notes with me um, because uh, I want to make sure that I want to thank Mr. And Mrs. Schwartz. So those type of things actually spend a lot of time on. And I also tell people when they're MC at a wedding, like I, I spend time with them. I try to spend time with them before. And I say, you, might, you have to make sure you're pronouncing the names correct. Because my name is Carfunkel. And you're going to call me up as Garfunkel. Then I don't care. My life will go on. But every Everyone in the Olam is going to be correcting you, and that's going to take away from the Hassan and Kala. It's just about Garfunkel, Garfunkel. So, uh, so yeah, so when you're speaking in a new audience, you want to get everyone's names right and stuff like that. And definitely, I want to spend time with the person that, that called me up and say, okay, what's the crowd? Is the crowd, um, can the crowd handle a little bit of, uh, you know, can the crowd handle TV references from the 80s? You know, um, you know, I grew up in Orthodox. 
uh, and uh, you know, in my head, I have a lot of those references, and that can inspire someone. I, I, he'll always laugh, but uh, but I had a couple come into the shul. She wanted to become more religious. He didn't want, and he told me he was uh, he's if he sees the podcast, he's going to shoot me. But he was a Denver Broncos fan, and uh, this was let's say '93, and I knew around seven or eight players from the the Denver Broncos from the early '80s, uh, and. Uh, I think Carl Mecklenburg, uh, as opposed to more obvious uh, running backs, and I knew like the the, the cornerback, not the quarterback only. And man, it was a real big, you know, as a humor sports, it's like you know, it's this common ground. And so, um, if I'm speaking to uh, you know a modern orthodox crowd in Teaneck, and I can, I, I know that I can certainly use those references. Um, obviously, I'm speaking to the twenty year olds; they're not going to get certain references from the. Uh, from uh, the '80s, but uh, as a big part of my life, a lot of a lot of messages, a lot of uh, nimsh mushals and nimshals. So, but if I'm speaking at the Aguda convention, if I even reference one thing like that, I've just puzzled myself. My kids aren't getting married, that's for sure. And uh, and you know well, what's it called again? And then the whole my whole message is lost. So I definitely want to spend time with that person to know the crowd, know the audience. Yeah. Okay. So two last questions. One is, do you ever get um, maybe complaints or criticism that there's not enough toche to, to what you say? You know, say, for example, a Shabbat Shuvat Russia or, uh, uh, or, you know, some, you know, on a week to week basis that people ever say, we, we want more learning, we want more substance, you know, this inspiration, that, that type of stuff is nice, but, uh, but, you know, give us a little bit more sophistication, a little bit more uh, intellectual uh, type, type of drasha or speech. Do you ever do you ever get that? So uh, I've I've gotten that. It's interesting because I give a parsha class before davening, um, and that's like, you know, really amazing stuff. Like Rav Dessler and the Siva Shalom and the Nitziv, and I feel like that's you know the, those are the times where I'm giving over tochen. Um, like, you know, on the, like, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there's obviously jokes on me, but, uh, but, you know, I'm giving over more stuff and I'm like, I, if those, those I want the people to know that I can deliver token, I just choose to do this style. Um, but yeah, I find that, um, that the, the, the token is, uh, is subtle. Like if you, if you, if you strip away, um, you know, a, a nakuda, a, a point, um, of the of the tochein machshava that you're rolling with, um, it comes down to uh, two sentences. So yes, you can use um, you know a bunch of rayas and follow it up like you know when we gave a habur in, yesh- in yeshiva, you talk about and you make a nafkamina, uh, and, and then you back it up with like six proofs that uh, of, of uh, six nafkaminas on your chakira. So, but at the end of the day, when you're giving a habura, your point can be summed up in two sentences. And then, and everything else is just sort of flash around that. I remember one time I heard from um, my Rebbe, we have to, we have two minutes ago, that there was a big debate who should be the Rashiva Velazhan, right? Uh, and um, and uh, was it the Sinai? Was it the Okaharim? Was it going to be the Nitziv? Was it Beisalevi? And like, and they picked uh, the Nitziv because people understood what he was saying. So, uh, you know, no one's ever accused me of, of over-speaking to them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that tochen is very important. But you can't lose sight of the fact that when you're delivering the tochen, 
there's the token just to show your credentials that you're smarty pants or is the token to deliver something real because just like you can t4 um, a message of uh, uh, I just came back from Florida visiting someone in my private jet oh you have as a private jet he's a you know so too when you over tochen it's a little bit of t4 look at me i'm a talmud chacham so just make sure you don't fall into that trap i could probably do a little bit more of that but i definitely don't want to fall in the trap of me trying to impress people and then come out fake right last question i have is how important is it for you that people remember what you say meaning are you, are you trying to give them something that they can take away and that they actually remember half a year a year from now or is it just uh you're just trying to uh influence them over time and and you know there's the experience and and somehow that that makes an impression you know maybe sometimes subtle maybe not so subtle and but but it's over time that you're you're uh, transforming them so I would say that, by the way, you've asked me around 15 questions. Each question is piercing my neshama because <laughs> my life is, you know, is, 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 you know, the whole week, everything is geared towards this moment. And you're asking me like questions are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to a therapist after your questions. Oh my gosh, that's a serious question. Your last question, like, ah, okay. So I would say like this, I would say, um, yeah, my one is that people should be awake and attentive during the sermon. So that's like my goal. Uh, and I find that I once heard the name of Maya Angelou that uh, that you might not remember what I said, but you're, you but you'll but you'll always remember how you made me feel. And so that's really really important that uh, that people feel closer to the community, more importantly, closer to Hashem, the geshmak about being Jewish and about coming to shul. So that's an important thing that I want to leave them with. But um, but I do think that uh, that midos breaking uh, takes time, uh, developing your character traits, developing your avodas Hashem, and so um, <clears throat> I just gave a class in, in, in bar mitzvah uh, class to my boys, and uh, just someone after davening just now came to me and says, you know, that um, yeah, it's funny because he has a very very unique Jewish name, the young man Ahaliyah, which is coming up in, in, in the, these parashiyas. And he said that, you know, you spoke about, you know, using your free will, that whole Dessler idea and uh, making choices and how many seconds there are in a day. He said, he remembered there's 86,000 seconds. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I think that, uh, look, I've heard um, a million sermons in my life. How many do I remember? You know, so I have to be honest with myself. I'm giving over, I give around 500 sermons a year, right? So it's mini sermon, sermonettes. You know, are people going to remember everything? Um, I don't know, but I do want them to feel closer to Hashem after. And yeah, if I speak to them a hundred times a year and they remember eight things, but they have a hundred spiritual massages and chizaks, then, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm blessed the fact that I have amazing people in the shul. And I think they mostly, they, they you know, like with Mordechai, most of the Ilam likes me. Amazing. Wow. Perfect. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. You've been listening to The Magid Method. And I'm Daniel Steinberg. There's a secret that great public speakers know. Did you know there's a method for cutting straight through to an audience's heart, grabbing their attention and holding it, and making a memorable impact with your presentation? The best speakers in the world utilize it. And now you can too, every time you get up to speak. Download your free Magid Method of Public Speaking template at magidmethod.com, M-A-G-G-I-D, M-E-T-H-O-D dot com. 
The Magen Method will teach you how to find your authentic voice, craft meaningful presentations, manage people's attention, and build unbreakable bonds with your audience. Go to magidmethod.com and download your free copy now.